If you're any kind of gearhead out there ever, you've heard this story. This is the story of Carol Shelby. We're your hosts. This is some fucked up shit. I spreck it once. You can't speak for shit today. Here I am reading a script. Thank you. Goodbye. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another week of Beautiful Bastards. I'm Grizz. And I'm Jerry. What do we got going on this week, Jerry? Uh, A few things, actually. For one, if you can't tell, I'm sick as fuck. Jerry's a bitch. It's not COVID, but it kind of feels like it. But I I got tested, so it's not COVID. Um, But we actually decided, because I'm on vacation next week in Tejas, uh, Texas, for anyone who doesn't speak Spanish, (laughs) we decided to record two episodes today, one for next week and one for the following week. So, I'll sound sick as fuck in two episodes. I hope you guys enjoy it. So, look forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jerry, what is our topic today? Today, we're talking about Carol Shelby. The man, the myth, the legend. No, Carol Shelby is not a lady. It's true. He does have a lady's name. It's like the boy named Sue. Uh, There's a difference. Carol with one L is a lady. Carol with two L is a man. Okay. I don't know. When you're speaking, no one fucking knows how many L's there are. <laughs> Wrong. This is, it's not Carol. This is Carol. <laughs> I just call him Shelby. All right, Shelby. So today we're talking about Carol Shelby. And uh, I didn't know much about him before this episode. As far as I knew, he designed special edition Ford Mustangs and had something to do with Cobra kit cars. That was really all I knew. <laughs> uh, I knew the story, but that's only because I worked in garages with many old men. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, he was much, much more than that. He was a serial entrepreneur, an industry-transforming race car driver, an industry-transforming car designer, a military pilot, and a man of many, many wives. And a little bit of a bullshit artist. Yeah. (laughs) But more than all of those things, he was an American icon. And after learning more about him, I can really understand why. Not only did he never back down from a challenging situation, he would seek them out and conquer them. And he took the hard path because that was the path that led him to li- led to him living the life he dreamed of. And I have nothing but respect for someone willing to go down that road. But before we find out who Carol Shelby is, some things happened in the news last week. So let's find out what happened between then and now. In this week's news, Georgia passed some questionable voting laws. And that has a few companies making some noise about doing business in the state. Well, good news, everyone. Mitch McConnell is on our side. He went out of his way to point out that corporate America has no business getting involved in politics, unless it's to give politicians bribe money. And he's totally (laughs) right. I think companies should absolutely sit by and covertly pay off politicians to allow them to break the law not point out when our lawmakers violate human rights to rig an election. I mean, really, voting American citizens shouldn't be allowed to eat or drink water, whether they're in line or not. So what are these companies even upset about? Dude, you know next election, whatever the fuck it is, there's going to be so much water. You know when the the riots were going on and mysterious pallets of bricks were showing up? Yep. It's just going to be a street fucking lined with pallets of Dasani. (laughs) Well, while we're on this topic... These poor corporations have another reason to be outraged. Joe Biden wants to pass a big infrastructure bill. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. 
It's a roughly $2 trillion funding plan to rebuild the infrastructure here in the United States. Replace shitty roads, replace sketchy bridges, expand fiber optic data lines, all kinds of goodies. Sounds like a good idea on the surface, and corporations have been telling Congress that America needs infrastructure upgrades for the past 20 years. But not like this. Not like this. No. No way. Biden wants to raise corporate tax rates from 21% to 28% to pay for the bill over the course of a 15-year span. What makes Biden think, think corporations should pay a fair share of taxes? <laughs> they aren't using the infrastructure. Their shitty peasant employees are. Do you really think Amazon delivers its own packages? Hell no. Amazon drivers deliver them. <laughs> and they pee in their bottles. <laughs> Maybe employees should take a pay cut to cover the infrastructure bill. That's my vote. But listen, corporations know something has to be done. So they made an anonymous counteroffer. Go ahead and raise the rate to 28%, but give us more loopholes and deductions. I'd say it seems reasonable. You American working plebs should just stick to being poor. It's what you're good at. <laughs> and speaking of doing things you shouldn't be doing, Andy, don't you have a reminder for the listeners? I do. I'm reminding everyone that the, the Ford Bronco is sport is still a piece of shit, and it's hideously <laughs> ugly. And Ford should not be making it. But here we are. It's funny that it, that it ties into this episode. You have a man who designs a car that's personally... One of my favorite cars of all time. It is absolutely beautiful. And the company has gone down the road to literally hand you a steamy pile of dog shit. <laughs> and they're actually getting out of the car business. They're kind of staying only with trucks, uh, SUVs, and I think the Mustang, right? Yeah, they've actually already gotten out of it. The only yeah. thing they're making that's a car is the Mustang because it's the only thing that sells. Because probably Carroll Shelby. Weird. Yeah, <laughs> you're probably right. So, let's get back to the person we're talking about today. So, Carroll Shelby. He was born in Texas, and he lived from 1923 to 2012. And it was one hell of a life. It started out pretty ordinary, though, uh, considering he lived 89 years old with not one bad heart, but two. Just like the rest of us, he had a stay-at-home mom, and his dad was the mailman. Like, literally, his dad was the mailman. Mm -hmm. And it was his mailman father that got him interested in racing. Even as a little kid, his dad was taking him to all the races he could, which back then happened to be a half-mile dirt oval track. It was the Great Depression after all, and racing wasn't big business yet. So all the racing you could get was one small half-mile track. Dude, that's still good shit, man. I, well, that's what I was going to say. Even if you've never seen a, you know, a dirt oval race, you should. It's one of the most fucking fun races I've ever seen. Oh, absolutely. It's nothing but it. a constant mess the whole time. Yep. I think he got his drive to succeed early in life because when he was seven years old, it was discovered that his heart had a valve problem. And this was hereditary. His dad died when he was 46. Uh, and that's when his dad was 46, not when Carol was 46. <laughs> um, and he spent a lot of his life actively having to overcome that serious medical issue. And I'm talking popping nitro pills while driving a race car because you would have died mid-race without them. That drive to succeed, mixed with the love of racing that he got from his dad, really shaped who he was and what he did. So much that the idea of perseverance really became his life motto. And I couldn't help but notice a parallel here, Grizz. We also know someone else who has poorly built insides with a motto of perseverance, don't we? <laughs> we do, Jerry. We do. You and your bitch internals. <laughs> It's me, 
<laughs> I'm just like Carol Shelby without, uh, you know, the early 1900s uh, benefit of being able to start something that hasn't been watered down. Uh, you also, it's a lot harder nowadays to sell someone something that actually isn't there. Yeah, it's all there already. <laughs> I often say that I wish I was born in like the 50s or earlier because my mind was made for all the shit that already exists and I could have made it. And I would have been rich, racing cars, but well, I can't I, do it now. I was just commenting more on the fact that uh, Carol Shelby could sell you, he could still sell ice cubes to an Eskimo. He could sell fucking he could. to anyone. He was a hell of a salesman, and that was really what got him where he was. But uh, as far as racing, he got serious about racing kind of late in life. He had been driving and racing things since he got his license at 14, but he was 29 before he really said, this is it. I'm a race car driver. And actually, he started driving at 12 when he and the boys built a go-kart like you only ever heard about back in the middle of the 20th century. They built a go-kart out of plywood and a washing machine engine. I guess I, love every, love I guess everybody back then, they were, they were all MacGyvers back then. Uh, but he, he was only 12 years old when he built this. So a group of 12-year-olds in the 1930s had more engineering skill than most people I know now. And it breaks my heart. You didn't design shit like that when you were a kid? Yeah. You see kids doing it now? Oh, no. <laughs> but anyway, back to uh, the man of the hour. Carol was not always an automotive icon. No. Before he became a big racer, he had to do something in his 20s. I mean, he didn't really start racing until 29, so what the hell was the madman of Mustangs doing for a decade? Building Corvettes? Building race cars? No. He started that decade flying planes for the military. Like any normal person would. He came up just in time for World War II, and so he ended up enlisting right out of high school. This man was born with balls the size of grapefruits, and he wanted to go kill some Nazis. <laughs> so he went and he became a member of the Army Air Corps. He was a great pilot, which comes as no surprise because driving was something he was born to do, and he was also a great leader. So he ended up being a pilot trainer for them and flew all kinds of military aircraft. And back then, it was common practice to hold the best pilots in the military back here in America. And Carroll was so good that even when he requested to be deployed to go get in some Nazi scalps, they said, no, you need to stay here and teach other pilots how to fly. Bastards. That's right. And that was really how he spent World War II. He just it wanted wasn't to go really get his, some. He just wanted to go kill some Nazis. That's it. Can you blame but, him? No, I can't. I mean, considering the times. Uh, so staying back wasn't his first choice. But there's really a huge likelihood that if he had got sent overseas, we would never have heard of him. And so he mustered out in 1945 and pretty much immediately got married to his first wife out of seven. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think the seven wives would have killed him off, you know what I mean? That, that must be what kept him going. So his first wife, huh, I should say his first of seven wives, was his high school sweetheart, Jean. And this was the start of some major, major changes for Carol. It was his first marriage, he had his first kid, and he raced his first real race car ever. I'm talking real race cars, not washing machine engine go-karts. And it was 1952, the first time he ever drove a race car. It had belonged to his uh, childhood friend, Ed Wilkins, which was, it's got to be the most Southern early American name I have ever heard. <laughs> uh, there's worse, but yeah. So Ed Wilkins owned an MGTC race car. 
And this was the <laughs> Southern boy with a British car. <laughs> yeah, there. Oh, listen, there were so many overseas cars here in America in the 30s. Dude, I guarantee if you ask kids nowadays, or even people our age nowadays, they don't even know what an MG is. No, and really, I don't blame them because they're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can build them to do whatever. And they're super small. I Listen, I like that old race style look. But uh, racing this MG for his friend Ed Wilkins was really the first step on his way to legendary status. And I think it was probably pretty clear to the people around him that racing was his gift because he won his very first race in this MGTC race car. And he continued to win most of the races going forward. He raced another friend's Jaguar, a different friend's Cat Allard with a Cadillac engine, which no one's ever going to see a Cat Allard anymore. I don't even know what it looks like. Nope. <laughs> but anything he drove, he won races with. His first year, he raced nine races won five, and got second place in another two. And this is his first year out racing other people who raced for a living. Yeah, and other people's cars, different cars yeah. the entire yeah. time. But the problem was, as good as he was at racing, he couldn't make a living at it. Because like I mentioned, racing wasn't big business back then. That's why he ended up as a serial entrepreneur with some of the strangest businesses I've ever even considered <laughs> from one person. His first business venture was the dump truck business. Okay. You're in Texas. They've got dirt. I can see that. I didn't find a whole lot on that. But from there, he moved on to work in oil rigs, offshore oil drilling. Then, when he got bored with that, he started a chicken farm. I mean, what Na really, where else would you go but to chicken farming? It's the natural progression of things. So I sell a dump truck business, get bored pulling oil out of the ground. Better raise some chickens next. <laughs> I have no idea what sparked these ideas or how he got onto each career path. But chicken farming. That's where he's at. Yeah, fuck that shit. You ever smelled a chicken farm? Yeah, I used to have to work on their equipment. That shit's so, awful. The bottom line is he chose to be a chicken farmer next, and it almost went really well for him. His first year, he made about a $5,000 profit, which is just over $54,000 in today's monies. In the 1940s and 50s, that was a good amount. Not a ton, but a good start for a guy who wasn't previously a chicken farmer. Unfortunately for him, though, it ended in complete and utter disaster. <laughs> fiery, fiery death. <laughs> uh, a chicken disease called Newcastle disease ended up killing almost all 20,000 of his chickens in one fell swoop. Yeah, two days, right? You see what I did there? One fell swoop. It's fucking killing me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was his second season. So his first season, he did pretty decent. But that bankrupted him, and he had to start all over. But lucky for him, this is when things started to turn around with racing here in America. And it was bad, or possibly good timing, that got him noticed. So shortly after all of his chickens died, uh, he was supposed to be at a race. It was about an hour from his house. But he was late. Like, really, really late. And yeah, someone was, reminded him. He was vaccinating that, his chickens, and his wife comes out and goes, Hey, jackass, you're supposed to be at a race in an hour. Yeah. Yeah, and he was so late that he didn't even have time to change. So he showed up to drive in his farm clothes. We're talking coveralls and work boots in the 19... Was it 1940s or 50s? 50s. So remember, guys, this is Texas in the... Yeah, 1950s. They loved racing, and they loved farming. So him showing up in overalls and then winning a race got his picture in the paper, and it built a public persona that people loved down in big old Tejas. Not to mention, Carol loved having his picture in the paper. Oh, man. He was like, uh, 
if, if they had selfies back then, he would have been doing selfies every day. Oh, my God. So he gets his picture in the paper just because he's wearing overalls? Guess who's wearing overalls all the time? Exactly. And he actually rocked that look for a while and just built his brand off it to the point that real racing teams started to call him and asking him to drive their cars on their teams. So he started out driving for a guy named John Wire in their team Aston Martin DBR3. And this was the first time he got sent to Europe to race in the Le Mans. And he was so good <clears throat> and made such a name for himself that no one even questioned whether or not he would win anymore. It got to the point where if he didn't win, the question became, what was wrong with his car? <laughs> and his reputation just took off from there. After racing Le Mans in the Aston Martin, he got an invitation to Argentina and then Mexico. And in 1954, he drove in what was called the greatest road race there's ever been, the Panamericana. And he was driving for Austin Healey. So the Panamericana, which is, it's kind of been off and on throughout history. It, it, it's never really consistently run. But it started at the Guatemala border and went about 2,100 miles over the course of seven days up to Juarez in Mexico. And it was one of the most dangerous road races in history. Yeah, but of course, bad ass. that didn't stop our boy Carol. Or did it? <laughs> so the year before Carol raced here, nine drivers died on the course. In the 1954 race, Carol Shelby crashed too. Because this the most dangerous course on earth. And they're they're driving basic jal basically jalopies. Well, they're driving just street cars that have been, you know, they're Back then, everyone tinkered with their cars, right? Yeah. It, this was a time where everyone worked on their cars, everyone fixed their cars, and everyone modified their car in another way or another. And another way or another? Another way or one? In one way or another. One way or another, I'm retarded. <laughs> you can't say that! <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so, dude, I don't even, did he even have a seatbelt? I don't think he had a seatbelt then. No, actually, that's something that a lot of people don't realize uh, is that back then there were no seatbelts, not no. even in a race car. So because of this and because Carroll crashed on this dangerous track, he got launched out of the car and he broke his elbow and got all kinds of fucked up. So, so bad, actually, that it was an eight month recovery for him. Damn. But Grizz, what do you think he did for those eight months? Furious masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with his one good arm. <laughs> so this fucking animal taped his broken arm in a cast to the steering wheel, and he kept winning races. I know a dude like that. <laughs> That's just who this man was. Cars and racing were his life, and nothing was going to stop him. I could not fucking believe that, that he just basically duct taped his broke-ass arm to the wheel. Makes sense. I guess, yeah. I mean, just turn with your shoulder. You're pretty likely to die anyway. They actually, so there, I don't know if this is a, a solid statistic, but Carroll Shelby himself said that they would lose about four, four racers a year to crashes. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, think about just back then work wise. People die all the time. It was yeah. Just part yeah, of they life. Did. They, it was sad, but they were totally accepting of it. That was just life back then. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> there were a lot of highlights for Carroll in his racing career. He drove Ferraris, Aston Martins, Austin Healey's, Maseratis, and he actually kept one of his original Maserati right up until he died in 2012. But all the big names in car performance back then, and he won more often than not. But really, that's not where he made the biggest impact. He was arguably one of the greatest race car drivers of all time, 
But there were two things that really made Carroll Shelby a household name the world over. One was his incredible work in car design with Ford, and the second was the rivalry that came up between Carroll Shelby and his Ford team and Enzo Ferrari that evolved into a rivalry between Ford and Ferrari. Now, I should say that I've never seen the movie, but a rivalry started between Carroll and Enzo before Carroll ever worked with Ford. So what happened with this situation was Carroll wanted to start importing and selling the cars people associated with racing. And of course, Ferrari was a big draw for customers, especially out in California where he had his little shop. And so when he started this shop selling the higher-end cars, he visited the Ferrari factory as a customer. When he gets there, obviously Enzo Ferrari knows who he is. He's a world-class race car driver. But Enzo just did not like the overall and cowboy hat-wearing Texan that wanted to buy his cars. I mean, from what I got from Enzo throughout life anyways, he was kind of a dick. <laughs> yeah, Enzo was a dick. I mean, didn't he name a car after himself? I don't know if he did, but someone did. But yeah. you also like the I in researching this, I found out that working if you worked for Enzo Ferrari, it was miserable. People hated it. <laughs> yeah, he's like the uh, the equivalent to Jeff Bezos now. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Enzo Ferrari is the 1950s Jeff Bezos. But I mean, a real like piece of shit. He'd pit people against each other. Like, yeah, just for the fun of it. Like, oh yeah, he was a up. fucked up dude, without a doubt. Uh, but as I said for obvious reasons now. Enzo just didn't like him. He hated Carroll Shelby. Really, I, I don't think he had a legitimate reason because uh, Carroll Shelby had driven Ferraris for other people before and won races in them. He helped the Ferrari name. But he wanted nothing to do with Carroll. So he basically kicked him out of his uh, factory, said, I'm not selling you Ferraris. And on the way out, Carroll told Enzo that someday he would come back and kick his ass. <laughs> on the racetrack, of course. And that planted the first seed that would lead to two dynasties battling for racing supremacy. So let's fast forward a couple of years. Now we're in 1959, and this was when they would meet on the track at the Le Mans. Team Ferrari was, of course, there, and Carroll was driving an Aston Martin. And this was an intense race because it was the first time that Carroll was really out to beat someone specific. He wasn't just there to win. He was there to take down Ferrari. Now the Le Mans is a 24-hour race. And Carroll spent the night moving up the pack right up to the front where Ferrari was. And they, he was in second place. So Carroll Shelby, a kid from nowhere East Texas, was only three laps behind Ferrari in the most difficult race in the world. But unknown to the rest of the people on his team, Carroll's heart starts to fail during this race. He was in the most extreme pain he'd ever been in in his entire life. It was so intense that he would end up leaning over the wheel holding his chest and the only way he could get through it was to take nitroglycerin pills as he drove. This didn't just help ease the pain. It was literally keeping him alive in this race. Later on in life, he finds out from a doctor that every time this happened, he was having a heart attack. This dude had hundreds of heart attacks throughout his life. He did. And throughout this whole race, Carol's struggling just to stay alive. He's passing everybody on the track and he's closing the gap on Ferrari. And it turned out, that luck was on his side. The Ferrari, which was usually nothing but reliable, started to break down for this race. And that allowed Carroll to close the gap even further to the point they were now on the same lap. And then Ferrari had no choice but to pit, leaving the race to be won by Carroll Shelby in the most incredible fashion anyone had ever seen. Literally, won the Le Mans while having a constant heart attack. <laughs> but after this race, 
Carol's doctor told him he needed to stop or driving was going to kill him. So he, what he, of course, what did he do? He tried to ignore his doctor's advice right through into 1960. But he realized real quick he really had to stop racing. So Shelby finds out he can't do the thing he loves anymore, right? He's just been told, dude, you keep doing this, you're going to be dead tomorrow. He gets home, and guess what? Remember those seven wives? Goes through a nasty-ass divorce. But Shelby, he may be down, but he ain't out. Never. He doesn't have two nickels to his fucking name because he just got dragged through the ringer through his wife. And he decides... Fuck it. I'm going to start a racing school. 1960 comes, and he's told he has five years to live. And his response, I love this. Eh, so what? He's just got <laughs> this fuck it mentality, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter what the hell. He has what he has, and he's going to do what he can. Yeah, there was actually, I don't know how long the stretch was, but every five years, his doctor said, you got five years left, and he just kept pushing it out. Yeah, so he's got this fuck it mentality and he says you know what screw this i'm building a race car i've always wanted to build a race car now i'm doing it and at the time corvettes were winning everything stateside ferrari had the world corvette had states so like we told you before shelby he was kind of a bullshit artist he could sell anything he convinces auto carrier or ac cobra a british car company to supply him with empty chassis doesn't give him any money Nothing. He goes up and he sells him a line of bullshit saying, hey, I'm backed by Ford. They want me to build racing cars for them. You, can you give me some empty chassis and I'm going to win shit? So, bullshit artist that he is, they give him a bunch of empty chassis. Then, he goes over to Ford and meets up with Leo Iacocca and convinces him to supply Shelby with a bunch of engines. Doesn't, dude doesn't have money. He says, hey, just give me a bunch of engines. And some about 20 grand, and I'm going to win some stuff. Can you imagine doing that nowadays? Yeah, well, because of people like him, people now say, all right, I'll give you the stuff, but you got to prove that they gave you that other stuff first. So if, if with Leo Iacocca, and it actually, you'll, a bond happens with these two. He Leo gets so fucking tired of hearing Shelby talk. He's like, fuck it, dude, just give him the engines and get him the fuck out of here. Once, he, once now that he has the chassis and the engines, Shelby moves his entire operation to L.A. Because that's where all the hot rodders are. And Shelby, knowing a thing or two about cars, knows that if he wants to make a fast car, that's where he needs to go. And that's the scene. So he puts together what is a mixing pot called Shelby American. And he designs the Cobra Roadster. He's got people from everywhere. Britain, Japan, Australia, Germany, everywhere. One of his people that he finds is Phil Remington. Phil Remington's like his lead engineer. And this dude just knows how to build cars. He knows how to make them fast. And that's all he does. In less than a year, Shelby had created his vision. Becoming my hero because he buttfucked Corvette. Corvettes suck. <laughs> I agree completely. I have always hated Corvette. Corvette's an old man car, man. Yeah, it is. I've never understood the, the, the love of them. And the people who love them, that's the only car they love. And they'll have fucking 10 of them. <laughs> they won't even look at other cars. So... He just raped Corvette. Now, who's he got in his sights but Enzo Ferrari? Shelby, he's got this Cobra Roadster, and it's fast, but it's not fast enough. He knows what the problem is. It's the body. And in his words, it's as aerodynamic as a shoebox. <laughs> Back to the drawing board again. But this time, he's got Pete Brock and 90 days to get it done. Can you imagine designing a car with 90 days? It was, it's, it was an incredible thing that they did. They took... 
a car from not even an idea yet to fully built, running, and finished in 90 days. Yeah, which is insanity. We can't even do that now. Yeah, no, no shit. <laughs> Pete Brock and Shelby create the Cobra Daytona. Real creative. <laughs> he named it that because of the race he was going to race it in. Which, they take to Daytona, and it blows the fucking doors off a of Ferrari. Until it catches fire. <laughs> <laughs> During a refuel. And it, it, it's a little bit of a hindrance, but it's fine. You know what I really thought was interesting about this aspect of, of their design process? The first Cobra, the, the AC Cobra was just, it was an open, basically open car. It had no roof. It was just a windshield with a yep. roll bar for the, the head. Yeah, it's got a windscreen. They, on the straights, they could hit like 150, 160 miles an hour. They did nothing to the drivetrain. All they did was design this new body, and now they were able to hit 200 miles an hour on the straights. And not Which only that. Of the time they, is unheard of. It was incredibly fast. But not only was it that fast on the straightaways, it basically left everybody in the dust everywhere else in the track because they now they didn't have any drag. I did like that Shelby... So Peter Brock comes up with this body design, which he actually got from the Yamins. Everyone hates it, right? Everyone was following uh, Phil Remington, and Phil hated it, so everyone hated it, right? Except for Ken Miles and Carol Shelby. And Carol actually went and talked with Ford about the aerodynamics of it all. And the, the aerodynamic engineers at Ford were like, no, that ain't going to work. That's a piece of shit. They couldn't be <laughs> more fucking wrong. <laughs> Just shows what we knew about aerodynamics back then. Absolutely nothing except for those people. <clears throat> yeah, pretty much. All of his mechanics, buddies, everything, wanted to keep driving the car that day that it engulfed in flames. They wanted to rebuild it, and they were like, this thing's so fucking fast. We could fix this right now, and it would still win the race. But Carol said, no, we're not doing it. We'll go back and re and fix everything else. We've got something here. We need to make it right. We have to take a little bit of a sidestep in the story, right? Because we have to understand where Ford comes into the picture. At the time, Ford's not selling the greatest cars in the world as far as they're not selling a lot. No, they were, they were missing a serious aspect of the car market, right? Yeah. And Henry Ford actually goes into the plant, shuts the whole fucking plant down, and tells people you need to come up with an idea or else we're not you're not going to have a job which he actually happens to do a lot. And Leo Iacocca comes up with this idea, we need to get into racing. If we want to sell cars, we need to win races. And he's not wrong cuz later a few years down the line, it was known as win on Sunday, sell on Monday. So Leo tells the Deuce, which is Henry Ford II, Ferrari is broke. Is that motherfucker? He spends all his money on racing. So Ford goes, and they're they're convinced we're gonna buy Ferrari. I mean, dude, for if Ferrari was half the name it is nowadays, fuck yeah, why not? They come to somewhat of an agreement that they're gonna buy Ferrari for sixteen million dollars. May twenty first, nineteen sixty three, Ford shows up to buy Ferrari. Ford brings an army of suits. Enzo brings the town lawyer. They're going over all the stuff, and it's believed that Ford's gonna gonna buy him over for sixteen million. Now, Enzo, the only thing that he gave a fuck about was retaining the motorsports side of the company. But in writing, it was known that if Ford wanted to do something with the, with the racing side, Enzo was going to have to listen. 
So Enzo says, fuck, no. that I, I have no deal. I can't do this. And he calls the deuce every name there is in the book. And he says that he's not his dad. And he's actually playing for it to get a better deal from Fiat. So the executives return back to the States and tell the deuce everything that he was called and everything that Enzo says and how he was used. And now the deuce is pissed. And he decides... He's going to do whatever it takes, no matter what the cost, to beat Enzo. So again, Enzo has pissed someone else off. (laughs) Now, Ford takes all its engineers and builds you the GT40. There's a problem with building cars by engineers, though. Jerry and I know about this. Looks great on paper, but as soon as you get it on the road, it's a steamy pile of dog shit. Oh, or is that the Bronco? (laughs) It's just a Ford thing. (laughs) You wouldn't understand. Oh, my bad. Listen, I shit on all cars appropriately. (laughs) So, they build the GT40. In an attempt to win the Le Mans, they promptly destroy all of them. (laughs) In the same year, Carroll Shelby is racing his Cobra Daytona and wins the GT class at Le Mans. There's a couple different classes there. You have the championship class and the GT class. Championship, you can have any car you want in it like uh, prototypes and shit like that. But the GT class has to be a manufactured car. So Ford just got their shit stomped in. And they need to find an answer. And someone who can beat Ferrari, someone who hates Ferrari. So Ford goes to Shelby, the only American to win the Le Mans as a driver and a manufacturer. 1964, Ford hires Carroll to win the Le Mans and redesign the Mustang, which I didn't know. I knew about the Le Mans. I didn't know about the Mustang rebuild at the same time. Because, dude, like, building a race car to go win the Le Mans is one thing, but redesigning the Mustang at the same fucking time? Are you kidding me? Shelby's got this buddy, Ken Miles, who also fought in World War II as a tank driver or tank commander for Britain. Ken Miles is that buddy that we all have that doesn't know when the fuck to shut his mouth. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? We've all oh, got yeah. one. Oh, yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. And he, his mouth gets him in trouble all the time. But so Ken and Shelby drive the GT40. And I, and I quote, Ken Miles says, this thing is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it's designed by engineers. What do you expect? It's a fucking steamy pile of garbage. Ford Bronco, I'm sorry, uh, GT40. <laughs> so they take this, what the Ford has spent millions of dollars designing, back to the drawing board and rebuild the car from the frame up with very little time to do so. Phil Remington steps back into the picture and gets to work. New suspension, new brakes, new engine. What size engine do you think they put in that, Jerry? Back then? Shit, I don't know. Four liter? Seven point. Oh, motherfucker. Oh, some bitch. You got me on that one. <laughs> that, that is fucking... That's a, dude, nowadays, that's a diesel. Yeah, that's fucking huge. That's massive. So they go through the redesign. The whole time, they've got Ken Miles test driving, Phil Remington redesigning this thing left and right. Ford Engineering couldn't figure out their ass from their elbow, as far as I'm concerned. And they needed a good old boy to fix everything. So now, the 1965 Le Mans is coming up. Ford, not liking the fact that Ken can't shut his fucking mouth, won't let Ken race. They pull him last minute, and at the same time, replace all the engines with factory engines prior to the race. So these guys have been testing an engine the entire time, and you're just going to yank it out and throw in a regular engine the next day, right before the race? 
Genius. Sounds like the most corporate decision ever. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Ford races the Le Mans in 65, but not a single car finishes. Ford corporate? Fucked up. The deuce is bullshit. He's ready to call it a day. In true corporate fashion, when they get back, the deuce hands Shelby a business card that says, you better win. Shelby tells him, we did exactly what we wanted to do. We've got Enzo scared. The Ford GT had gone faster than any other car had on the straightaways. Let me do what I do. And let me have my racer. So the deuce lets Shelby do his thing. But at the same time, corporate fashion, hires two other teams to compete with Shelby. Back to the drawing board. At the same time, Enzo is scared shitless. And he designs the P3. Have you seen the P3, Jerry? I have not, actually. It looks like something out of, um, what was that TV show we watched? The Jetsons. Really? I'm like, going to look it up right now while you're telling me about it. Dude, it is like, it's some sort oh my of, God. like, should be I have funny. seen that before, and it's fucking terrible. <laughs> it's so ugly, and like, oh, my God. <laughs> it, it looks like something that should be floating in air, right? <laughs> People, look up the look up Ferrari's P3, and you'll laugh. So the P3 can only go 190 miles an hour, so it's not nearly as fast as the GT40, but it's lighter, and it's a little bit more agile, and it's getting better fuel economy. Enzo's plan is to trick the Ford drivers to drive their cars hard early in the race so they fucking destroy their cars. 1966, Shelby's redesigned the car. They've tested it to the nth degree. He has the right driver. Ford shows up to the Le Mans with eight cars, this time with Ken Miles. The first lap, Ken's door won't shut. But once they fix it, Ken breaks record after record after record. Now the executives at Ford tell the re- all the drivers to hold back due to fears of breaking their cars. Ken Miles, in true Ken Miles fashion, didn't listen. By nightfall, four of the eight GT40s were out of the race. Ken Miles is light years ahead of even the next Ford. Ford, in true fashion, corporate, right, wants a side-by-side finish. And they convince Ken to slow down and meet up with the trailing Fords. Now, they had been told, supposedly, that even though they were finishing side-by-side, Ken would have got the win. But then, when it comes down to when they finish, they've the, the judges decide that Ken didn't win in the end. It was one of the... I don't, do you remember who it was? No, I don't remember the uh, the kind of no name drivers besides Ken because yeah, really, no. they they were really nobody of any significance. No, but so they robbed Ken Miles of the triple crown. Ford didn't really like Miles, and Ford wins the Le Mans first, second, and third place, cementing Shelby's place with Ford. Ken Miles is down, but he's like, whatever, I'll come back. Two months later, Ken Miles dies while testing a new version of the GT40. And all while this is all going down, Carol Shelby is redesigning the Shelby Mustangs that we've all known, heard, and loved to look at. I love those. From 1965 to 1970. He's got the GT350, the GT350S, the GT500, the Koba GT350, and the Koba GT500. Gorgeous fucking cars. So that's basically the... uh, That that kind of sums up the story of the whole rivalry with uh, Ferrari and... Ford, Ford slash Shelby. Uh, but 
really after they beat the shit out of Ferrari and embarrassed Enzo, they they were kind of that was it for them. Shelby ended up leaving Ford in 1970, and uh, right up until 2007, I think it was or early 2000s anyway. Uh, Shelby just kind of drifted around looking for something to do. He tried to do something with Oldsmobile and made some funky car. I think it was a Type One they called it. Yeah, it wasn't very good. No, it was it was weird looking. It kind of you could tell it had its roots in Shelby's designs, but it was it was a really unsuccessful car. He was involved with uh, the Viper. Well, yeah, the Viper was. I was gonna say the Viper was made because of him. Yeah, I mean it's kind of like the the Cobra. That's why probably why they chose the name Viper. It was like a, co- a competitor to it, mm. uh, even though it really wasn't even the same style car. But Shelby didn't really do a whole lot until Ford asked him to come back in the early 2000s to help him design the uh, Shelby GT350 um, anniversary car, I think it was. Yeah, it was. You, you remember when that came out? Yeah, yeah. I like that. Uh, actually, that's when Mustang started looking good again. <laughs> yeah, well, it's because they went back to their roots. They, it, it was a modern car, but they went back to that old style, and it really revitalized the Mustang name because Shelby was involved with it. And early 2000s, late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, Mustangs are hideous. <laughs> <laughs> I A lot of people disagree with me, but uh, like 1995, before the Mustang had its facelift, when it was the bigger body, you know, the, the one Fox right body? after no the Fox body, and then you had whatever they called that ugly one, the rounded one, the round aerodynamic one. fucking turd. yeah yeah. But a lot of people disagree with this, but I say that when they first went to that new body style, it looks just like an Oldsmobile Alero. I don't remember what the Alero looked like. I so I'd have to next time you look up the Alero, and next time you see one of those older Mustangs from behind, you're gonna be like, you know what? That's a rear wheel drive Alero. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> Dude, nowadays, like. Throughout my life, cars have gotten more and more boring. They're all mirroring. They're all mirroring each other. Yeah, I mean, well, you look corporate. at one, you could easily mistake it for another. Yep. Nothing has any sort of style. If you look back at when, when Carroll Shelby was helping Ford redesign the Mustang, I mean the the Mustang. What before that happened, dude? The Mustang was nothing. It was a fucking like, it was a boring car. It was a mom car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, dude, cars of that time era were gorgeous. Nowadays, oh, they were. just meh. They, but they I, should have stuck with the those unique designs. They, 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 they could definitely still do that, but they it's, cor- it's all corporate now. They'll never step outside of those bounds again. Bounds again. Yeah. And I actually think when it comes to the design of the car, a lot of it came down. De- I don't think Carol Shelby was the, the ultimate design of the car. I think Carol was the leader and he led he the design knew, teams yeah he knew who to get and and how to to make them work right? and he knew how to market it. he knew what they needed exactly. to sell that car where he got if perfect example he got uh remington and remington was the guy who des- who made the car work and then he gets pete brock and pete brock's the one who designs the way it looks he finds the people who are the best at it and not necessarily because they have a degree in it but they're just the best at it because they have a niche for it. Yeah, he, he was a team builder. And he makes them do what they do best. Exactly. Absolutely. And really, if it wasn't for his bad heart, he would probably still be alive and still be helping Ford make cars. But unfortunately, his second heart eventually won that fight and he died in 2012 from heart failure. 
really, considering he was supposed to die every five years, 89 <laughs> years old is pretty damn good. Yeah, he's quoted as saying he was supposed to die every five years, but every five years they'd come up with a new drug or a new surgery or whatever that would just keep him going. So I guess he was just a combination of raw skill, drive, and a fuck ton of luck. Sheer fucking will. <laughs> and that's the story of Carol Shelby. Thank you guys again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. Take a few minutes and give us a rating on iTunes. It's a major part what keeps the wheels greased on this shit show. And it helps us keep the lights on so we can keep bringing you new content. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, our website, and anywhere else you stream your content from. If you enjoy the show, you can follow us on Twitter at PodBasters, Instagram at BeautifulBPodcast, Facebook at BBP, or you can check out our website, BeautifulBastardsPodcast.com. Believe in what you want to do and go do that. Don't let anyone sidetrack you. Carol Shelby. Thanks for stopping by. See you next week. <laughs>